This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. Listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and the work of civil society. I'm your host, as ever, Rod Davis. This is episode 63, and first thing to say is a happy new year, uh, one and all, as this is the first podcast of the 2020s. Uh, I hope everybody has had a good break of one kind or another and is excited about what the coming decade holds for them. Um, I'm certainly looking forward to the next year from the podcast point of view. Um, all things uh, going well. We should hit 100 episodes this year, as long as I don't take any unscheduled breaks of any sort. Um, we've got some good guests lined up uh, to interview throughout the year, some of whom I've already got in the diary, some of whom I've tentatively got in the diary, and some of whom I haven't asked yet, but hopefully they'll say yes when I do. Um, also some interesting themes uh, already kind of in mind to to cover. Um, and inevitably, I think, given the way the last few years have gone, there will be stories and uh, issues around philanthropy that come up that uh, present themselves as kind of new focuses for for the, for the podcast. But, you know, I will reissue my standard invitation that if anybody has ideas for things we could be talking about or people I could interview, please do drop me a line at givingthought at cafonline.org because I'm all ears on that front. Um, to kick off the new year and indeed the new decade... Um, I wanted to do uh, the same thing that I've done for the last couple of years uh, and just kind of outline a few predictions for what the year ahead might hold. Uh, Also, uh, kind of have a brief run through of the predictions that I made last year and see where we got to, although uh, I'm not going to do an an entire episode on that uh, as I did last year. As it turned out, nobody really wanted to listen to that. Um, (laughs) So I thought I'd kind of fold the two things in together uh, and attempt to keep it um, reasonably brief, although anybody who's listened to the podcast before will know that even when I say up front that I'm going to try and keep it brief, uh, that usually doesn't result in any discernible reduction in running time, but I will, I promise, attempt to do that this time. Uh, So first of all, yeah, I think uh, let's kind of split this into a couple of things. So first, I think last year I talked about broad kind of political and economic um, uh, things that that could come up uh, and affect philanthropy and civil society. Um, the things that I outlined last year, I mean, it wasn't that difficult to uh, come up with a prediction around Brexit. And I think I hedged my bets and say Brexit may have happened or it may have not. And I'm glad I hedged them because obviously, you know, listeners in the UK and elsewhere will know that um, there's been an enormous amount of political wrangling and sort of existential crisis around Brexit. But the actual act of leaving uh, the European Union has not yet taken place, um, although it now seems pretty much guaranteed to given the recent general election and the change in the political arithmetic here in the UK. The general election is also something that I flagged up as a possibility last year. Again, it's not that I'm Nostradamus. Plenty of people suggested that it was a possibility and it did come to pass, uh, although, you know, very late in the year. Um, And we'll come on uh, in a minute to to just have a bit of a think about what that might mean for the environment around civil society in the UK. A couple of other things I I flagged up. I said um, the UK was doing its voluntary reporting on the uh, sustainable development goals the the kind of shared un framework for measuring achievement against a set of, of defined goals and i thought that might bring quite a lot more 
political and sort of public attention on the SDGs. Um, I don't think that really came to pass in the UK. There's still not something that is uh, exactly a kind of topic of, of mainstream conversation or people chatting about them around the dinner table. Um, and it may well be that they're just one more victim of the extent to which Brexit kind of dominated uh, the political and kind of um, public debate uh, over the last year. Um, and it may well be that they're, you know, something that has a bit more room to breathe, as many other things uh, hopefully might now that um, some of the, the, the kind of discussion around Brexit has, has quietened down. Um, other things that I flagged up were around kind of ongoing austerity and issues around local government funding in the UK. Um, I mean, that's an interesting one in that um, politicians of you know various sorts have been coming out and, and declaring an end to, to the period of austerity. Um, but I think the, the kind of reality on the ground for local government in the UK suggests that there are still significant challenges there so it may well be that there's a kind of gap between uh, the the rhetoric that politicians would like to put forward and the reality on the ground. I think another one that I flagged up as a potential was another global financial crash which has not yet come to pass thankfully but um, I think ongoing instability in various different areas of the global economy means that that is something you know every year when we're thinking about predictions we need to sort of bear in mind. Um, in terms of specific predictions that I would make for, for this year, again, you know, as I've said in previous years, making predictions is largely a mugs game, so I'm going to keep these uh, reasonably kind of high level because it's uh, easier than uh, not. Uh, the less specific you are, the, the harder it is for people to kind of hold you account uh, for them later. Um, but just a couple of thoughts on things that I might think, you know, that I think might be interesting. One here in the UK is whether we'll actually see a period of significant greater political stability um, in that the extremely and the sort of surprisingly um, conclusive result of the recent general election um, you know whatever your personal thoughts on whether or not that outcome was the right one or the one that you wanted to see I think the reality is that after you know, quite a long period in the UK when uh, we've had kind of coalition governments or small minorities or, you know, small majority governments, which have made uh, it very difficult for uh, controversial or kind of awkward bits of legislation to be driven through, we now have a situation in which one party has a clear majority and therefore will be able to push through you know a pro- proper program of kind of policy um and and a kind of vision for the country over the next five years so i mean one way or another it feels as though the political landscape is now fixed for for that period of time and organizations and individuals in civil society can kind of plan a bit better and make decisions about what they need to do um, to prosper within that new environment or indeed to kind of stand up against particular particular uh, policy issues or to kind of campaign on particular causes. I think another question that's of interest to me that's related to that is whether now that um, it's kind of been decided that Brexit is definitely going to happen, whether that's going to result in a reduction of division or whether the kind of division uh, social and political that we've seen in the UK um, uh, kind of come out of the woodwork in in the wake of, of the original Brexit vote in 2016 is going to continue. Um, and I sort of wonder, because there's been a lot of noises from plenty of people on both sides of the, the leave and remain fence um, saying, actually, what everybody needs to do now is just to, to get on with it. And, uh, and indeed, Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, recently made a call um, in one of his speeches that, you know, he kind of reaching out an olive branch to, to those who'd voted leave, uh, to voted remain 
uh, in the referendum, uh, which you know some people uh, took in in good faith and others didn't. Um, and that in you know that response in itself was kind of interesting because it suggests that that simply saying let's all get on with it and be friends again isn't necessarily going to heal what appear to be quite deep divides in society. And also, I guess the you know the reality of things like Brexit and indeed the election of Donald Trump in the US and and other issues elsewhere is that uh, whilst they populist views or um, others have been brought to the forefront as a result uh, of some of those political events and they've kind of unearthed social uh, and political division that division was surely kind of runs deeper than that and was already there so it's not as easy as sort of kind of putting the genie back in the bottle once the the events themselves have have kind of run their course so I suspect the next year we'll see kind of ongoing political division and social division and this will continue to be an issue for civil society organisations themselves um, either because they find the environment within which they have to operate less conducive or they kind of have their ability to operate challenged or their legitimacy challenged and also because it will create new work for them to do in kind of um, healing divisions within communities and kind of uh, trying to play that role um, as a space in which people with divergent views can kind of productively come together and try and explore um, how they can overcome some of those differences. I think one of the other um, obvious upshots to me of the change in the political landscape here in the UK um, is that there will definitely be a more of an emphasis on the idea that the appropriate role of charities is largely as kind of deliverers of services um, in order to address the the symptoms of social issues, um, whether that is done uh, through government contracts or more likely given the um, the nature of the Conservative government that's now in power and, and its views um, sort of separately from the state. And I think that will be seen as uh, as in opposition to the separate role of, of civil society organisations as campaigning organisations aiming to address the underlying causes of social issues and kind of transform the structures that are responsible for them. I say that because, you know, it's not as simple as a left-right political uh, divide between those two things, but certainly the the strain of sort of one-nation Toryism um, that seems to be being put forward uh, at the moment uh, does heavily err, I think, towards the idea um, of sort of voluntary action and voluntary service um, as a way of addressing um, issues directly and is kind of has over the last few years certainly been less um, favorable towards the campaigning role of civil society organizations and I suspect that will continue uh, and civil society will need to continue to make the case for the legitimacy of that campaigning role and indeed the importance of it to society and democracy as a whole. I think other things we'll see uh, as a result of the changed political landscape in the UK are that the idea of international development and aid will uh, continue to come under pressure. I mean, those are things that have uh, have a strong political dimension and um, have become politicised, uh, and many of the people who have been most critical of them are now the ones who are in positions of power here in the UK, so I think it will continue to be difficult for organisations operating in that space. Um, I think the flip side of that is there will also be an increasing focus on localism and political devolution within the UK. UK. I mean, I think political UK, uh, de- devolution in the UK is a subject where 
rhetoric has a much stronger history than uh, kind of actual practical action being taken. But um, it certainly seems to be the case in, in the wake of um, of the Brexit vote that one of the things people have said is that it obviously highlights that there are significant differences at a national and regional level between different areas and in order to address those one of the obvious things to do is to sort of empower those areas and give them the tools they need in order to be able to take uh, matters into to their own hands um, so it may well be that we see significant um moves towards greater devolution and it will be interesting to see what role there is for charities and indeed philanthropy within that. Um, the other thing I realise this has all been rather UK centric but um, I hope you can forgive me that because obviously uh, political changes have been rather large in the last few months and on everybody's minds um, but obviously the other big event that's that's looming for everyone is um, an election in the US uh, later this year um, and whilst obviously that doesn't have a direct impact on my life uh, in terms of uh, the work I do here in the UK, I think the reality is that it has such a significant knock-on effect uh, across the world that it's something that everybody will be watching keenly. And I think whichever way um, the result of that election goes, whether Donald Trump stays on as president or is or is voted out of office, um, you know the the nature of uh, the way in which that election plays out, and indeed the result of it. I think will have a huge impact on the sort of general atmosphere around um, politics and sort of political trust and uh, kind of, you know, the the general narratives around uh, public discourse. Um, And that will, I think, obviously have some pretty big ramifications for for civil society. So that's going to be a huge thing. Um, I think the other thing that I'd like to just bring into this section, which I, I think I mentioned as one point last year, but I think deserves to be taken as a section entirely on, on its own uh, now, um, is the environment, which one thing that we've definitely seen over the last few over the last year is that environmental issues have become much more um uh, a sort of topic of mainstream debate and the acceptance of the need to take action has definitely intensified i think people were certainly aware there were issues around these things but i think both uh greater awareness of the existing impacts of them i mean even as i speak the the images coming back from australia of the bushfires out there are really causing people to to sort of you know question um whether we are doing anywhere near enough to to kind of uh, address the impacts of of climate change um around the world but also um i think the the demonstration through movements like extinction rebellion and the actions of climate change activists like greta thunberg of you know what can be done to to start to address uh some of these issues and to challenge politicians to do what is necessary i think have given renewed impetus to people uh, to feel as though there's something they can actually do about them so i think that there's been a much greater sense of urgency growing and i think that's certainly something that will continue throughout the year um, here in the UK, we're hosting the 2020 UN Climate Summit in Glasgow, so I think that will also provide a focal point for discussions around the the topic over here. I think specific civil society relevance and sort of philanthropy relevance is is a really interesting question. I mean, historically, if we were talking about this, we would have been talking about you know the, the important role of environmental charities or conservation charities in pushing on these issues and sort of you know. Uh, speaking out on them and bringing their expertise to the table and I think that continues to be very important but 
even more so than that, one of the things that I think we've seen over the last year and, and more is a sense that environmental issues are now um, at such a level that they cut across all other um, issues or sort of you know relate to them. So they can they don't they shouldn't be seen as part of the same category as other charitable causes. I think many people now would argue that all organisations in civil society need to have one eye on environmental issues, and that those issues are should be the concern of all charities, non-profits, and philanthropic funders. Um, and indeed, I think you know there has been growing pressure on institutions and funders of various sorts to demonstrate their environmental commitment whether that is sort of directly in terms of the way they operate as organizations or you know indirectly through their investments Um, and some of them have been targeted with divestment campaigns or uh, arts and culture institutions for instance have been challenged by uh, the sort of nature of corporate donations that they take and I think we will see far more of that over the coming year and years as people start to kind of look for ways in which they can pressure organisations that they are involved with to um, sort of take much more radical steps um, uh, when it comes to environmental issues um, so certainly watch that space. Um, Okay, in the next section, I'm going to come on uh, briefly to talk about technology. Um, So stay tuned for that. Okay, so in this section, uh, I'm going to canter briefly through some thoughts about um, what the coming year might hold in terms of technology issues. Um, Obviously, something that I've banged on about quite a lot on the podcast before. Uh, made various predictions last year, not all of which came uh, to pass, uh, some of which sort of did, and some of which I'm going to repurpose here anyway, so if you missed them first time round, uh, lucky you, you get to hear them again. Um, so just a kind of mixed bag of things in no particular order here. The first one, something I've been talking about for a while, um, I think we've already seen, but we'll continue to see a lot more, is um, an ongoing shift away from uh, special purpose platforms for charitable giving and more towards commercial platforms adding giving functionality to their existing offerings. So I think, you know, we've already seen payment providers like Apple Pay and Google Pay add in the ability to make donations. We've seen social media platforms like Facebook and latterly Instagram um, uh, add some of that functionality to what they do. Uh, In China, I think you've got some really fascinating stuff going on with uh, WeChat Pay and Alipay kind of trying to introduce virtually frictionless giving. There's also some interesting stuff going on in terms of gaming platforms like Twitch and others, um, which are trying to harness or tap into a kind of potentially entirely new uh, set of donors and with kind of different you know, interests and drivers. Um, but I think we will see more and more of that, um, which potentially opens up huge new opportunities for fundraising of different kinds um, and may drive forward innovation when it comes to giving because um, many of these companies, if they see charitable giving as something that adds value to their existing offering uh, and have an interest in competing on that offering, they will have the resources and the in-house skills to be able to apply potentially more innovative uh, new technologies uh, to kind of push that forward. Whereas, obviously, 
if it's left to charities themselves or charity specific providers it's very difficult for them to start fiddling around with machine learning or kind of using blockchain themselves because there is uh, such a kind of high barrier to entry in terms of the risk appetite the resources required the, the expertise necessary and all those sorts of things the the downside obviously i think uh, as in many other areas is that if what we're doing is sort of quietly and without thinking shifting everything that we do in the online world onto platforms that are owned and operated by commercial providers there's a real danger that there will be a mismatch between the aims and incentives of those platform operators and the individuals and organizations that are trying to use them for charitable purposes so i think you know we need it may well be this year that we will see some instances uh, of that happening another one i think you know something that people have become aware of more over the last year is the idea of um deep fakes um so this is artificial intelligence generated uh video and audio content that's sort of pretty much indis- indistinguishable from the real thing um which is interesting in itself um and i think there are organizations within civil society trying to kind of raise awareness around it like witness um or amnesty international i think what it's what we will see more of in the coming year um, that is kind of wider but which deepfakes are a part of is increasing challenges to the authenticity of civil society in uh, in a kind of online context um, so I think what we'll see is more and more instances of things like astroturfing where organizations um, or corporate actors or governments set up plausible sounding but fake grassroots organizations online uh, in order to make it seem as though there are sort of two sides to an argument or as if there is public support for a particular issue um, obviously this is something that has that has always happened um, before there was the internet but I think again the ability to do that now it's um, is such that you can create plausible sounding um, organizations or even just use social media to kind of create chatter in a way that is so easy that it's it's kind of it's very easy easy to to kind of confuse any issue by creating multiple different viewpoints on it um interestingly i think i said last year about this uh, challenge to online authenticity and there was an interesting example in the uh, election here in the uk where the uh, press office of one of the political parties the conservative party during one of the leadership debates um came in for a lot of criticism because it changed the the name of its uh, official partisan twitter account to fact check uk i believe um and obviously you know the idea here was to kind of they claimed it was sort of tongue-in-cheek or as though it was you know they were trying to present the idea that the the opposition needed to be fact-checked in this way but what they were doing was adopting the language uh and the the kind of imagery of independent civil society organizations that already exist out there that do fact-checking uh in order to kind of um it's a form of authenticity theft in a way as you sort of take the the authenticity of these these organizations that already exist and are out there trying to be impartial and to try and address some of the issues of uh kind of partisanship and uh challenges around public discourse and actually you find that the organ you know people are so aware of that that they're trying to kind of um use some of those efforts uh precisely to kind of further the problems that they were there to solve in the first place and i suspect we will see far more of that i think on the um just briefly on the kind of cryptocurrency and blockchain front i think my my general sense of what's been going 
going on that over the last year is that there's been a lot less noise around uh, crypt- mainstream cryptocurrency, although it kind of continues to tick on. And actually, there are, you know, have been plenty of kind of cryptocurrency donations. Or I think, you know, there are some interesting uh, concerns about the valuations of those and whether actually the amounts that have been reported as being held by certain organizations are actually significantly lower than, than we may have thought. But that's a, a much more complicated issue than I want to get into right now. I think the one big story that emerged this year uh, around that was around Facebook's plans to launch its own cryptocurrency or digital currency called Libra, um, which um, has subsequently come in from for a lot of criticism from all sides and raises quite a lot of issues around you know what the nature of cryptocurrency is, whether bypassing existing financial systems uh, is a good thing. Government's concerned about the amount of power that it would give a company like Facebook that already has a lot of power. And I think for civil society, again, you know, it goes back to that thing I was saying just a minute ago about ceding power to uh, commercial platforms. Well, again, if Facebook suddenly became the de facto currency in which people make donations, the amount of power that they would have as a gatekeeper would be absolutely phenomenal. So it's certainly something that we need to keep a watching eye on. Um, whether Libra ends up launching at all, or certainly in the form that it was initially proposed, um, I don't know. I mean, that is supposed to happen this year, so that will be something to watch out for. But I think more broadly, um, we might see a shift towards governments and corporate actors adopting the idea of cryptocurrency, but sort of doing away with all of the crypto libertarian stuff around, uh, you know, decentralizing it and uh, getting it out of the hands of, uh, of central authorities and control. Um, so actually, it may become potentially a tool to kind of further centralized power, which I think would concern plenty of people. Um, more broadly around blockchain, I'd say, you know, what I've seen is that a lot of the hype around blockchain has died down. And what what continues what is continuing to happen is happening in a much more subdued way behind the scenes and there are some interesting partnerships between kind of um, academic institutions and non-profits and others who are trying to kind of explore the potential of the technology at a slower pace um, which I think is probably the right thing and it will be interesting to see you know whether any of those kind of produce fruit over the coming year. Uh, Moving on to AI I think um, again I get a sense that some of the hype around AI has slightly died down or kind of people are beginning to question whether it was slightly overblown. I think less so than blockchain and there were more um, existing use cases of AI. But I think people have at the same time become aware that a lot of the existing use cases are ones that are potentially problematic and people have concerns about the use of kind of algorithmic systems for determining things like welfare conditions or uh, decision making in in the criminal justice system and those sorts of things. So um, I think there is probably uh, over the coming year going to be a sense of even less magical thinking about artificial intelligence. So I think the idea that what we're talking about here is kind of super intelligent or human level intelligence or beyond human level intelligence uh, computer systems or robots people are understanding that what we're actually talking about is kind of algorithmic decision making systems and getting a clearer sense of what all the potential benefits and also downsides uh, of that are Uh, and I think hopefully that kind of clarifies for civil society organizations what their role might be uh, in kind of 
challenging uh, the development of AI or kind of speaking out on some of the issues. Um, one of the things I think we may see, or I certainly hope we may see, is more civil society organisations and funders kind of ramping up efforts to engage even more with these issues and to sort of get involved into lots of the debates that are already going on around things like the ethical development of AI or kind of broader fourth industrial revolution technologies. Um, I think what we'll see within that potentially is more of a pushback on the idea that these discussions need to be about the development of ethical frameworks and uh, perhaps more focus on the idea of traditional legislation and regulation as instruments for controlling the development of technology. And it'll be interesting for civil society to decide which way it goes in that, whether it kind of engages with the, if the tech industry finds itself in opposition to government, as we, I think we're going to see in, in certain places around the world, does civil society kind of side with the tech industry in order to try and help it to develop its own ethical approach to, to the development of these technologies? Or does it side with government in its efforts to try and constrain the development of those technologies? Um, I think that's going to be a really interesting question. The one sort of specific thing that I think we'll see around uh, our artificial intelligence um, that is uh, kind of already there as an implementation of the technology is around uh, voice uh, activated assistance or kind of voice controlled interfaces and I think there will be an increasing amount of thought given within philanthropy and civil society to how you optimize for that form of search or indeed kind of other forms of search that may be coming just around the corner. Uh, I think, you know, lots of organizations have just about got their head around uh, traditional search engine optimization, but there's a whole new question, I think, then about how you potentially uh, optimize in an online environment where people are accessing it through voice controlled interfaces because it strikes me that's very different to a traditional kind of uh, visual list based inf uh, interface. Um, and then the final one I want to say on technology um, is that I think we will see uh, you know continued focus around the idea that uh, new technologies, the internet and, and kind of technologies that go beyond that are creating new possibilities in terms of the creation of uh, networked movements and sort of enabling protest in a kind of decentralized way and um, non-traditional models of sort of leaderless and non-hierarchical organization. I think we'll see more examples of that. I mean, we already have things like Black Lives Matter and the Me Too movement and Extinction Rebellion. Um, and I think there's been a lot of in interest in how they have been so successful at gaining public attention and kind of bringing issues up the political agenda. I think what we may also see, and uh, maybe this is based on my own personal prejudice because it's something I've thought and written quite a lot about at the end of last year, but I think we'll see more awareness of some of the potential limitations of those models when it comes to the point where you've raised uh, awareness around an issue but you need to kind of sustain it beyond that or engage with more traditional levers of, of policy and legislation and there I think there will be a question about how more traditional civil society organizations then engage with movements to kind of combine the the best of of both worlds and and potentially kind of create new hybrid models between them that have the speed and flexibility of some of these new network movements but also have some of the kind of hard won institutional infrastructure of more traditional organizations so watch that space Okay, well, uh, that brings that section to a close, I think. Uh, in the final section, I just want to give a couple of specific thoughts about philanthropy and civil society and charitable giving uh, for the next year. So stay tuned for that.
Okay, so in this final section, um, and again, I uh, apologise for saying that I was going to keep this brief because we are running just as long as you'd expect, but I will definitely try and keep it quite brief. Um, uh, I want to just give a couple of thoughts about uh, philanthropy specifically and charitable giving and civil society. Um, Again, in no particular order. Um, The first one, I think, is something that uh, I think is kind of overarching and people have become aware of and it's very much going to shape a lot of my work over the coming years and that is the fact that there appears to be a decline in uh, charitable giving or participation in charitable giving and certainly mass market charitable giving in many different countries around the world um it's something i'm going to do a specific podcast episode on um fairly shortly uh, and we're going to be doing a lot of work on uh, at CAF over the coming year um but it's you know it's something we've tracked in the uk uh, and in the work we do looking at participation in giving worldwide but also independently other organizations in the US and Canada and Australia and elsewhere have seen similar declines i think the the interesting questions within that will be well firstly what are some of the potential underlying causes of it because i think at the moment um you know there're lots of different potential explanations being put forward but i think we need to uh, try and determine you know which of those are context specific because some of the arguments or ideas put forward i think are specific to uh the uk so some people suggesting for instance the impact of things like gdpr in the us people saying it's very much uh, to do with changes in the charitable uh, tax deduction over there uh, and i think there are those those sort of context or region specific explanations but also i think there must be some more deep kind of cross-cutting societal changes um, and cultural changes changes that that we can identify that are kind of common between different areas Uh, and i think by understanding what some of those different factors are and the extent to which they are playing a part in each different context we can start to get a handle on what we might do about this which i guess you know for for lots of us who who work in civil society is really the kind of important question and that uh, kind of leads on to to something else which uh you know one of the potential causes that gets identified in most different contexts um is the suggestion that actually the apparent decline in charitable giving is a reflection of the fact that there are simply just more ways for people to do good nowadays um and and what we're so by that i mean things like uh people uh, being able to engage in kind of social investment or impact investing uh cause related marketing where you kind of buy products that also claim to to do good ethical shopping uh getting involved in network social movements extinction rebellion black lives matter and that sort of thing crowdfunding for social causes whether that's at an organizational level or kind of personal person-to-person crowdfunding uh, and other things and I guess the the argument is that if these things are not necessarily being captured in the definition of what we mean by charitable giving when we go out and and do polling and surveys about charitable giving it might just be that people are increasingly choosing to do good in in all these different other ways um I think that this is a really interesting idea and it's definitely true that we need to broaden our horizons um, in terms of thinking about how people seek to do good not only because I think there are many ways in which people have always chosen to do good that we we haven't really effectively captured but also I think uh, the the boundaries of what constitutes uh, charity or, or a kind of charitable or non-profit organization do seem to be shifting quite significantly and so if we don't change our definitions uh, of what we think you know the the charity sector is or what philanthropy is uh, accordingly then we're going to end up with definitions that are no longer fit for purpose 
Um, so I think you know we will certainly see more uh, of, of debate around that kind of thing emerge over the coming year. I think another thing we're going to see, which is is linked in a way, is uh, continuing criticism of philanthropy and particularly kind of um, big money or elite philanthropy. Um, this is something we've seen plenty of over the last couple of years, and we've sort of talked about it a lot on the podcast, and um, I won't go into details, but there's all sorts of different critiques out there. I think this is uh, something we'll see more. I think there will be more criticism of philanthropy over the coming year, um, both because I think people are now aware of some of these critiques, none, none of which I think, as I've said many times before, are inherently new, but many of them sort of have new impetus because you know we are at a time of unprecedented um, uh, economic inequality I think in many countries and uh, obviously that kind of creates uh, questions about the role of philanthropy um, I think there are also questions about the relationship between philanthropy and democracy which again at a time when there's been quite a lot of uh, sort of instability in many kind of traditional liberal liberal democracies uh, is something that is at the forefront of people's minds and um, I think also you know there are specific critiques within uh within the broader narrative that will will just come up again and again so for instance things like the question of whether certain donations or sources of money are tainted or kind of ethically questionable um is one that we've seen come up um over the last year or so in the shape of uh concerns about the Sackler family the the um donations from Jeffrey Epstein the disgraced financier the president's club uh dinner here in the UK uh, and others and I think there will be more examples of that Um, uh, and I say that not because I think the next year is going to be particularly bad for philanthropy but just that that is a story that has been around for a very very long time Um, it's always been a kind of question for philanthropy about whether uh, the way in which money is made uh, has kind of implications for the legitimacy of giving it away and how you balance some of those things out Um, and I think that will continue um, to be uh, a big issue over the coming year and there will be you know I think a lot more scrutiny of the sources of philanthropic wealth. Um, I think one thing building on that that we might see a bit more of which we've started to see i think towards the second half of of last year is a bit of of pushback in the opposite direction on some of those critiques of philanthropy uh i I mean the ones i'm i'm not so interested in the ones that that kind of dismiss it out of hand and say actually you should stop criticizing philanthropy because you know it's people trying to do good i think that misses the point i think what what is more interesting is there have been some some attempts to push back that have kind of acknowledged that there are issues with philanthropy, but said or argued that some of the critiques are in themselves too broad brush or kind of uh, extrapolate to uh, conclusions that are too broad and thereby uh, also end up uh, catching too many other things um, in their focus apart from elite philanthropy which is usually the the main sort of uh thing that they are focused on and as a result they may have 